Our text this morning is from John 14, 1 through 7. You will find this passage on page 901 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. We don't mind, Jacob. You read so well. There you go. All right. Okay, we are in John 14, 1 through 7 this morning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. After this, we have one more I am statement, and then we're done with our summer series. Let me um, pray for us, and then we'll look at this text together. Father, we are here this morning to sing your praises, to read and hear your word, to pray to you for our needs. And we come, Lord, not because we have some special status that we've earned, but we come because we need you desperately. And so, Lord, um, may we have the spirit of Thomas this morning saying that we don't know the way We come to you for that answer. And so, Lord, I pray that you would deal in our hearts and our minds with the truth of this scripture this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, This passage begins uh, with this phrase, let not your hearts be troubled. And so I think it's good to kind of review Uh, What has happened since last week that has caused so much trouble in the hearts of the disciples? So last week we talked about the resurrection of Lazarus. Um, I would say that in John, that's really the peak of Jesus' ministry. And everything after that really begins to fall into place pretty quickly for his crucifixion. Um, in, In fact, after he raises Lazarus, there's a bit of a plot twist. You can see it in two different places. First, um... The, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the uh, priests get together, and they set out at that point to kill Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they even say to themselves, uh, he obviously is from God, but if he continues, Rome is going to come down hard on us, and we are going to lose everything we currently have. And so they say, we must kill this man. And in fact, they go further than that. Another passage a little later, they decide to kill Lazarus as well. I'm not sure if they were successful in that, but it doesn't seem that they were. Um, so Jesus, in the context of raising Lazarus from the dead, he experiences the triumphal entry. And it says in John that those who had either heard about or witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus were the ones who were loudly praising Christ as he entered Jerusalem. That adds a little context there. After that, Jesus uh, tucks away with the disciples into the upper room, and they're having their last supper together. They don't know it, but in this time, he washes their feet, which to some of them is a little troubling. It's this ultimate demonstration of service. 
But then Jesus uh, makes this strange prediction that someone in that room will betray him. And he does this publicly. And on the side, he tells Judas, go do what you're going to do. And Judas leaves. And it says the disciples assume he's going to buy groceries or something. And so uh, Jesus is starting to say these really kind of scary things. And then he starts another level of scariness when he says to them, I'm about to leave you. And where I am going, you cannot come with me. He says this to the disciples. And, and uh, so think about this. He's ministered with these men for three years. The things they've seen, the things they've done, the, the connection, the friendship, the intimacy they've had with Jesus. And he's saying, I'm going away. You can't come with me. And so Peter, the leader, the, the, uh, uh, the leader of the disciples, you might say, uh, says this, Lord, this is in uh, John 13. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to the Lord, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So... (laughs) Ominous. Things are getting ominous. Jesus told the disciples, someone's going to betray me. He quietly told Judas to go do what he's going to do. And now he's publicly calling Peter out for the betrayal that will happen. And so the disciples are like, man, are leaders going to betray Jesus? And so this word troubled makes sense. It means great distress, be disturbed, to cause a riot. As one author put it, it indicates a mental and spiritual agitation and confusion. And so the attention that Jesus has brought on himself through the the resurrection of Lazarus and his ministry, the, the increasing anger of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests, this fact that Jesus is leaving, and not only is he leaving, he's going to be betrayed very quickly by someone who knows him, who loves him, who's been with him. The fact that Peter is going to deny Things have gone from this joyous occasion of the triumphal entry to something very somber, very serious. And it's gone, it happened very quickly. And so Jesus tells them in the beginning of this passage a command. Let not your hearts be troubled. Take control of your hearts. It's a present imperative in the, in the Greek. And so it means stop doing an action that you're already doing. It's not a future tense like, hey, when you're nervous, but no, you are, you have a riot in your heart right now of fear. Stop it. Stop it. Let's connect with the disciples for a moment. We feel this. This is not a feeling that's strange to us. As we look at the world around us, we can feel disturbed in our very spirit the passion with which the world rejects Jesus Christ, saying that they're right, he's wrong. At times, watching the church itself uh, uh, warp scripture to match up and, and be more relevant, if you will. I know I feel it sometimes when the questions come up about Christ or, or theology that I just don't have the perfect answer to. You... Mix that with our own failure to really dwell in the word of God. And so there's this sense of kind of guilt, like should I, should I have read more? Maybe I would have the answer. Our negligence to pray, our betrayal of Christ and our own sin. When we think about the work of the church, even the work of our own spiritual growth, how inadequate we feel. 
And at times, many times in our life, our confusion as to what God's plan is, all of these things bring us to the place where the disciples are in the upper room. Confusion, a riot of fear in our hearts. We don't know what's going on. We are troubled. And what is Christ's remedy for the troubled heart? Here it is. So first, let not your hearts be troubled. And here's how. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This word believe means to place your complete trust in God. Place your complete trust in Christ. I was reading something this week about uh, the saying of John the Baptist where it says, he lay, uh, even now the ax is laid at the root. And, and the author of that, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the author of that sermon was saying how this is a, a, a phrase that shows a complete disconnection with what we've ever thought before. And so when we are given Christ, he is what we can trust in every way and everything. We need to trust in his power, his nearness, his truth. And, and the, the command here is a continuous action. It's purposeful. It's something we have to do every day. In fact, probably something we have to do every hour. An ongoing placement of our hearts and our minds in the truth of the reality of God and Christ. And Jesus expands on this. What is the reality that they should believe in? What's the thing that they should look to place their trust in that's going to relieve their troubled hearts? Verse two, in my father's house are many rooms. What's, who, what's the band? I'm looking at John Tyler. What's the band that sings that ridiculous song about? There's a big, big, is it a Big Tent Revival? Okay, if you've never heard this song, it's ridiculous, look it up later. There's lots and lots of rooms where you can play football. Like, it's a totally weird view of heaven. But anyway, uh, just p- popped into my mind. Um, what is the thing that keeps them from trouble? What is the reality they're, to place their hearts in? It's this idea that, first of all, the house of the Father has many rooms, has ample space for everybody, not to play football, to be with Him, be with the Father. And we've talked about this several times throughout this series. What does it mean to be in the presence of the Father? It means peace and mercy and blessing and joy. You can actually go down to verse 6, the last phrase. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is the goal. That is the destination. It's not the place. It's the person. There's room in my Father's house The fact that at the end of the trouble is the peace of the presence of the Father is something that comforts us in the trouble now. Now, I talked about Romans 8.28 as a verb last week. Don't Romans 8.28 each other. And what that really means is don't take that as a way to band-aid over pain now. But really, and I was talking with Jennifer this week about this, when you interpret that verse correctly, this is the meaning. What is the good thing at the end? The peaceful, joyous, perfect, painless presence of the Father. At the end of the trouble is the peace of the presence of the Father. And it's not only a place, just a random place. It's a personally prepared place that you will be personally guided to. Look at the second part of verse 2 through verse 4. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself and where I am, uh, and where I am, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. 
The ESV adds a lot of ifs in there, but really the language here is very certain. Jesus is making a declaration. I am going, I am leaving. Where I am going right now, you can't come with me. And as I go, where I'm going is to the presence of the Father to prepare a place for you. Certainty. And when it is done and when it is time, I will come back to you and bring you to me. (laughs) It's all Jesus. And so let's make sure we can review here before we get into Thomas and his question. What is the place? The place is the Father. What is the way to the place? It is Jesus. He just told us, I am coming for you. I will bring you. And so what is the troubled heart comforted by? The certainty of our destination, the certainty of Christ's preparation and the certainty of Christ's return to bring us there. So our past, our present, our future is secure in Christ and he, he is our comfort in all those phases of time. Now, that's actually a complete sermon. It's about nine minutes long, but uh, Thomas happens, okay? Thomas happens. Now, I appreciate Thomas. Thomas actually allows us with his question to attain some depth here. Uh, I like the idea that that Jesus picked all kinds of disciples and and all the different kinds of disciples allow us to to learn different things because of the things they don't understand, the things that they fail at, the things that they ask, the things that they do. And so here, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? He's brave for asking, as we might say, bless his heart, okay? Bless his heart. He's pulling out his atlas, or a scroll, I guess it would be. So show me where where are we going? I need to know where we're going to know how to get there. Um, What did Jesus just say? We just reviewed. I will come and get you and take you there. But what is Thomas asking, really? In all this trouble and all this uncertainty, Thomas, what is he believing The question really goes to the point where he's saying, listen, if I'm to depend on my own knowledge of things, it won't get me there. If I'm to depend on me, if it's up to me, I won't make it to the Father's house. And we all should say to Thomas in that moment, amen, Thomas, amen. Now we might might be thinking more spiritual than Thomas did. Thomas is being very literal here. But we might be asking similar questions in our own life, in our own troubles. How am I going to make it today? How am I going to survive to the end? How am I going to remain a Christian until the end? How am I going to get to heaven? These might be questions we're asking and in the same vein as Thomas, as we look at ourselves and think about the destination, we feel inadequate for the journey. And Jesus responds to all of us. He starts by saying, I am the way. We tend to look at this phrase, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life as equal parts, but really what we have here is Jesus declaring, I am the way, that's the answer, and the truth and the life, which we'll look at in a second, are supplemental, they're, they're explan- expl- explanatory. Um, and so here we have the way, it's a direction, it's a path, it's a road, the way to a place. Now. Jesus is not a literal road, or in the, in the way to the Father is not a literal road, it's a following. Jesus is saying, the way to the Father is to follow me. 
Our way is not found on a map or in things or in other people. Our way is found in him alone. He alone leads us to the Father. One author said it this way, Jesus is the means that people are brought to the Father. Both the way and the destination are persons. They're persons. Verse 7 gets to this. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Meaning, I am the way. I am the Father. I am the destination. I am the journey. It's me, Jesus. Then we come to the other two statements, the truth and the life. The question that answers is, how is it that we are to follow Christ? First, the truth is the content of Christ's teachings. The content of Christ's teachings. Jesus wasn't speaking throughout his whole life because he liked the sound of his voice. And Thomas pinpointed, actually, what we should hear this morning is that we are unable we are unable in ourselves to find the way on our own. We don't have it in us. The truth of the gospel as taught by Jesus Christ is the real and relevant truth of, for our lives right now. He spoke things that we need to hear, that we need to absorb. The truth that he's speaking of is the whole of the content of his teaching and Christ's teachings are meant to be absorbed and understood now. And here's the great news. This is just a few verses later. We are not alone even in that. John 14, 25 through 26, Jesus says to the disciples and he says it to us in turn, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Think about all the things that God is doing for us in these verses. Think about it. Jesus is going, he's preparing, he's coming back, he's taking. God will send the Spirit who will bring remembrance to us. We are simply sitting in the truth of Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's what following Christ looks like. Following Christ is much more organic than we give it credit for. What is following Christ? What's our role in it? It's the regular intake of the scriptures. When we sit and read our Bible, we are literally sitting at the feet of Christ and he is speaking to us and the spirit is teaching us and Jesus is guiding us forward. And that's where we come to the, the word life. The word life. Life here is the process of Christ living through us. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, the content, and he is the thing that moves us forward through life. You can call it sanctification, you can call it becoming who you already are, you can call it installing the software, whatever you want it to be, but the abundant life comes, uh, comes from following Christ now serving his kingdom and our neighbor more and more, leading us and securing us all the way to salvation, where does it come from? The spirit moving in us, bringing us forward. You can see the melding of truth and life a few verses later. John 14, 21, Jesus says again to the disciples, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so what is the way? 
It's Jesus. How does this play out in our lives? The content, having the word, the commands of Christ, the teachings of Christ, sitting in, absorbing, understanding the content, and then life, the the spirit-led obedience, the keeping of that word. Thomas is asking, and we often do too, what must I do to find the way? And Jesus' answer is, me. (laughs) Me. Look at me. Follow me. He's saying to them, look at what I've already done and said. Look at that. Look at it. He's telling them and telling us in past tense, but them, watch what I will do for you. I'm going to die on the cross in your place, and then I'm going to be raised again. And then, look what I will do in the future. I will come back for you. I will gather you to me, and I'll take you to my Father. It's a church. When we feel outmatched, when we feel outnumbered, when we feel uncertain, we feel like we can't go on, where does comfort come from? It comes from the truth and the life found only in Jesus Christ. Where does our motivation to keep going come from? It comes from the truth and the life found only in Jesus Christ. What does that look like? It looks like holding true to the content of Christ's message experiencing the fruit of the Spirit and being thankful, giving praise to God because that's where it comes from. It's not us doing good works. That is Christ living out through us. It's the intake of the truth and the outpouring of power. It's the increase in understanding and the consequence of that, which is obedience. And so this morning, no matter where you find yourself in life, a good place to start no matter what kind of confusion you're experiencing, no matter what kind of pain you're experiencing, no matter what kind of even joy you're experiencing, a good place to start in every single one of those scenarios is look to God's word. Look to God's word. Look to the truth and the presence of Christ in fellowship. Pray in the power of the spirit to experience fruit and perseverance. It's at this same supper that Jesus instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And just a few verses, right around where we've been referencing to, but John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And this morning I want to draw our attention to the Lord's Supper and its role of bringing peace to our hearts. Jesus Christ, in the Lord's Supper, gives us peace. He gives us peace. And there's, you can look at it a lot of different ways, but we're going to look at it threefold this morning. First, there is this idea that in the Lord's Supper, Supper, we remember. We remember. This is the Holy Spirit bringing the remembrance to us. It's a remembrance of his broken body, his shed blood, his cross, his resurrection. The victory won. And guess what? That's done. That's not something we can do or manipulate or change. It's finished. 
according to Christ's own words. In the present, this sacrament is a reminder that as tangible as this bread is to me, Christ is with us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is here. He's with us. That's his promise. In in the Great Commission, I will be with you, present tense, to the end of the age. He's as present as this bread and this cup, and he's our nourishment right now. I also love the idea of the Lord's Supper. It's a, there's a future concept to it. The future is, this is a rehearsal for the wedding supper of the Lamb. When we are with Christ, when he has come, as he told the disciples he would, and he has gathered us, and he's brought us to his Father's house, and we see the place he's prepared, there's going to be a party, and we are invited to that party, and this is the practice for it. It's a celebration that Christ has done it all, and we are the benefactors of that. So this morning, if you confess as Thomas did, hey, (laughs) if it's up to me, I don't know the way. I don't know the way. And if we believe the answer that Christ gave, that that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, if we profess that to be true, if we have made that public confession, we've made that profession in our hearts, we've been baptized, we're invited to come and eat. It has nothing to do with our ability to find the way. Jesus is the way. So this morning, come and eat the bread and drink the cup. You're welcome. Not like you're welcome, but like you're welcome to come, all right? If you haven't accepted these truths, if you're not like Thomas, where you are saying, you know what? I don't need to know the way because I've got it pretty well figured out. That doesn't make any sense for you to come and eat. If you feel like, I, I, I definitely don't feel like I know how my life is going or how, where it's going, but Jesus can't be the answer or he isn't the answer. It doesn't make any sense to come this morning and eat. And so we'd ask you this morning, if that's where you're at, it's okay to be honest. In fact, it's best to be honest. So don't participate this morning. Let's take a moment just to meditate on these thoughts. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing in just a moment. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that our hearts would not be troubled. There is much from a human perspective to be troubled about. Beyond the list that I mentioned in my sermon, there's so many things that we could add to that list that cause us to fear, that bring up a riot in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, this morning that we would be comforted by the fact that at the end of all this, for those who are in Christ, we are gathered up, we are brought to the roomy, the peaceful, the merciful, the forgiving, the, the, the painless, the restored house of our Father in heaven. Praise your name. In the meantime, as we traverse this life, We do run into trouble. We do feel 
sadness and stress and suffering, may this meal be a moment of peace, a moment where the Spirit brings to our minds the suffering of Christ in our place, the victory of his resurrection, his ascension, his return to come get us, and the party we will participate in that we paid nothing for, we have no money, and yet we come and we eat. And so, Lord, I pray that blessing over this time. Bless this bread to our soul's comfort and nourishment. Bless this wine and juice to our soul's comfort and nourishment this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.